Hello. Thank you for listening to Art History at Bedtime. My name is Bendel Grosvenor. This story is the life of Leonardo da Vinci, who was born in 1452 and died in 1519. It was published in 1568 by Giorgio Vasari as part of his Lives of the Eminent Painters, Sculptors and Architects. This translation is by Elizabeth Foster and was published in 1888. The richest gifts are occasionally seen to be showered as by celestial influence on certain human beings, and they sometimes supernaturally and marvellously congregate in one sole person, beauty, grace, and talent being united in such a manner that, to whatever the man thus favoured may turn himself, his every action is so divine as to leave all other men far behind him and manifestly to prove that he has been specially endowed by the hand of God himself, and has not obtained his preeminence by human teaching, or the power of man. This was seen and acknowledged by all men in the case of Leonardo da Vinci, in whom, to say nothing of his beauty of person, there was a grace beyond expression, which was rendered manifest without thought or effort in every act and deed and who had besides so rare a gift of talent and ability that, to whatever subject he turned his attention, however difficult, he presently made himself absolute master of it. Extraordinary power was in his case conjoined with remarkable facility, a mind of regal boldness and magnanimous daring. His gifts were such that the celebrity of his name extended most widely, and he was also held in the highest estimation not in his own time only, but even to a greater extent after his death, and this he has continued and will continue to be by all succeeding ages. Truly admirable indeed and divinely endowed was Leonardo da Vinci. This artist was the son of Ser Piero da Vinci. He would without doubt have made great progress in learning and knowledge of the sciences, had he not been so versatile and changeful. But the instability of his character caused him to undertake many things, which, having commenced, he afterwards abandoned. In arithmetic, for example, he made such rapid progress in the short time during which he gave his attention to it, that he often confounded the master who was teaching him, by the perpetual doubts he started, and by the difficulty of the questions he proposed. He also commenced the study of music and resolved to acquire the art of playing the lute when, being by nature of an exalted imagination and full of the most graceful vivacity, he sang to that instrument most divinely, improvising at once the verses and the music. But though dividing his attention among pursuits so varied, he never abandoned his drawing and employed himself much in works of relief, that being the occupation which attracted him more than any other. His father, Ser Piero, observing this, and considering the extraordinary character of his son's genius, one day took some of his drawings and showed them to Andrea del Verrocchio, who was a very intimate friend of his, begging him earnestly to tell him whether he thought that Leonardo would be likely to secure success if he devoted himself to the arts of design. Andrea Verrocchio was amazed as he beheld the remarkable commencement made by Leonardo, and advised Ser Piero to see that he attached himself to that calling. 
whereupon the latter took his measures accordingly and sent Leonardo to study in the workshop of Andrea. Thither the boy resorted, therefore, with the utmost readiness, and not only gave his attention to one branch of art, but to all the others of which design made a portion. Endowed with such admirable intelligence, and being also an excellent geometrician, Leonardo not only worked in sculpture, but in architecture likewise. He prepared various designs for ground plans and the construction of entire buildings. He too it was who, though still but a youth, first suggested the formation of a canal from Pisa to Florence by means of certain changes to be effected on the river Arno. Leonardo likewise made designs for mills, fulling machines and other engines which were to be acted on by means of water but as he had resolved to make painting his profession, he gave the larger portion of time to drawing from nature. He drew on paper with so much care and so perfectly that no one has ever equaled him in this respect. I have a head by him in chiaroscuro, which is incomparably beautiful. Leonardo was indeed so imbued with power and grace by the hand of God and was endowed with so marvellous a facility in reproducing his conceptions. His memory also was always so ready and so efficient in the service of his intellect, that in discourse he won all men by his reasonings, and confounded every antagonist, however powerful, by the force of his arguments. Leonardo was also frequently occupied with the construction of models and the preparation of designs for the removal or the perforation of mountains to the end that they might be easily passed from one plane to another. By means of levers, cranes and screws, he likewise showed how great weights might be raised or drawn, and in what manner ports and havens might be cleansed and kept in order, and how water might be obtained from the lowest deeps. From speculations of this kind he never gave himself rest, and of the results of his labours and meditations there are numerous examples in drawings dispersed among those who practice our arts. I have myself seen very many of them. Having been placed then by Ser Piero in his childhood with Andrea del Verrocchio, as we have said, to learn the art of the painter, that master was engaged on a picture the subject of which was San Giovanni baptising Jesus Christ. In this Leonardo painted an angel holding some vestments, and although he was but a youth, he completed that figure in such a manner that the angel of Leonardo was much better than the portion executed by his master, which caused the latter never to touch colours more. So much was he displeased to find that a mere child could do more than himself. Leonardo received a commission to prepare the cartoon for the hangings of a door which was to be woven in silk and gold in Flanders thence to be dispatched to the king of Portugal. The subject was the sin of our first parents in paradise. Here the artist depicted a meadow in chiaroscuro, the highlights being in white lead, displaying an immense variety of vegetation and numerous animals, respecting which it may be truly said that for careful execution and fidelity to nature they are such that there is no genius in the world, however godlike, which could produce similar objects with equal truth. It is related that Ser Piero da Vinci, being at his country house, was there visited by one of the peasants on his estate, who, 
having cut down a fig tree on his farm, had made a shield from part of it with his own hands, and then brought it to Ser Piero, begging that he would be pleased to cause the same to be painted for him in Florence. This the latter very willingly promised to do, the countryman having been very skilful in taking birds and in fishing, and being often very serviceable to Ser Piero in such matters. Having taken the shield with him to Florence, therefore, without saying anything to Leonardo as to whom it was for, he desired the latter to paint something upon it. Accordingly, he one day took it in hand, but finding it crooked, coarse, and badly made, he straightened it at the fire, and giving it to a turner, it was brought back to him smooth and delicately rounded, instead of the rude and shapeless form in which he had received it. He then covered it with gypsum, and having prepared it to his liking, he began to consider what he might paint upon it, to suit it best and most effectually terrify whomsoever might approach it, producing the same effect with that formerly attributed to the head of Medusa. For this purpose, therefore, Leonardo carried to one of his rooms, into which no one but himself ever entered, a number of lizards, hedgehogs, newts, serpents, dragonflies, locusts, bats, glowworms, and every other sort of strange animal of a similar kind, on which he could lay his hands. From this assemblage, variously adapted and joined together, he formed a hideous and appalling monster, breathing poison and flames, and surrounded by an atmosphere of fire. This he caused to issue from a dark and rifted rock, with poison reeking from the cavernous throat, flames darting from the eyes, and vapours rising from the nostrils in such a sort that the result was indeed a most fearful and monstrous creature. At this he laboured until the odours arising from all those dead animals filled the room with a mortal fetter, to which the zeal of Leonardo and the love which he bore to art rendered him insensible or indifferent. When this work, which neither the countryman nor Ser Piero any longer inquired for, was completed, Leonardo went to his father and told him that he might send for the shield at his earliest convenience, since, so far as he was concerned, the work was finished. Piero went accordingly one morning to the room for the shield, and having knocked at the door, Leonardo opened it to him, telling him nevertheless to wait a little without, and having returned into the room, he placed the shield on the easel, and shading the window so that the light falling on the painting was somewhat dimmed, he made Ser Piero step within to look at it. But the latter, not expecting any such thing, drew back, startled at the first glance, not supposing that to be the shield, or believing the monster he beheld to be a painting. He therefore turned to rush out, but Leonardo withheld him, saying, The shield will serve the purpose for which it has been executed. Take it, therefore, and carry it away for this is the effect it was designed to produce. The work seemed something more than wonderful to Ser Piero, and he highly commended the fanciful idea of Leonardo. But he afterwards silently bought from a merchant another shield, whereon there was painted a heart transfixed with an arrow, and this he gave to the countryman, who considered himself obliged to him for it for the rest of his life. Some time after, Ser Piero secretly sold the shield painted by Leonardo to certain merchants for one hundred ducats, and it subsequently fell into the hands of the Duke of Milan, sold to him by the same merchants for 
300 ducats. Leonardo also had a fancy to paint the head of a Medusa in oil, to which he gave a circlet of twinning serpents by way of a headdress, the most strange and extravagant invention that could possibly be conceived. But as this was a work requiring time, so it happened to the Medusa, as to so many of his other works, that it was never finished. The head here described is now among the most distinguished possessions in the palace of the Duke Cosimo, together with a half-length figure of an angel raising one arm in the air. This arm, being foreshortened from the shoulder to the elbow, comes forward, while the hand of the other arm is laid on the breast. It is worthy of admiration that this great genius, desiring to give the utmost possible relief to the works executed by him, laboured constantly, not content with his darkest shadows, to discover the ground tone of others still darker. Thus he sought a black that should produce a deeper shadow, and be yet darker than all other known blacks, to the end that the lights might by these means be rendered still more lucid, until he finally produced that totally dark shade in which there is absolutely no light left, and objects have more the appearance of things seen by night than the clearness of forms perceived by the light of day. But all this was done with the purpose of giving greater relief and of discovering and attaining to the ultimate perfection of art. On the death of Giovanni Galeazzo, Duke of Milan, in the year 1493, Ludovico Sforza was chosen in the same year to be his successor, when Leonardo was invited with great honour to Milan by the Duke, who delighted greatly in the music of the lute, to the end that the master might play before him. Leonardo therefore took with him a certain instrument which he had himself constructed almost wholly of silver and in the shape of a horse's head a new and fanciful form calculated to give more force and sweetness to the sound. Here Leonardo surpassed all the musicians who had assembled to perform before the Duke. He was besides one of the best improvisatory in verse existing at the time and the Duke enchanted with the admirable conversation of Leonardo, was so charmed by his various gifts that he delighted beyond measure in his society and prevailed on him to paint an altarpiece, the subject of which was the Nativity of Christ, which was sent by the Duke as a present to the Emperor. For the Dominican monks of Santa Maria della Grazia at Milan, Leonardo painted a Last Supper, which is a most beautiful and admirable work. To the heads of the apostles in this picture, the master gave so much beauty and majesty that he was constrained to leave that of Christ unfinished, being convinced that he could not impart to it the divinity which should appertain to and distinguish an image of the Redeemer. But this work, remaining thus in its unfinished state, has been ever held in the highest estimation by the Milanese, and not by them only, but by foreigners also. Leonardo succeeded to perfection in expressing the doubts and anxiety experienced by the apostles, and the desire felt by them to know by whom their master is to be betrayed. In the faces of all appear love, terror, anger or grief and bewilderment, unable as they are to fathom the meaning of their Lord. Nor is the spectator less struck with admiration by the force and truth with which, on the other hand, the master has exhibited the impious determination, hatred, and treachery of Judas. 
The whole work is indeed executed with inexpressible diligence, even in its most intimate part. Among other things may be mentioned the tablecloth, the texture of which is copied with such exactitude that the linen cloth itself could scarcely look more real. It is related that the prior of the monastery was excessively importunate in pressing Leonardo to complete the painting. He could in no way comprehend wherefore the artist should sometimes remain half a day together, absorbed in thought before the painting, without making any progress that he could see. This seemed to him a strange waste of time, and he would fain have had him work away as he could make the men who were doing a digging in his garden, never laying the brush out of his hand. Not content with seeking to hasten Leonardo, the prior even complained to the duke, and tormented him to such a degree that the latter was at length compelled to send for Leonardo, whom he courteously entreated to let the work be finished, assuring him nevertheless that he did so because impelled by the importunities of the prior. Leonardo, knowing the prince to be intelligent and judicious, determined to explain himself fully on the subject with him, although he had never chosen to do so with the prior. He therefore discoursed with the duke at some length respecting art, and made it perfectly manifest to his comprehension that men of genius are sometimes producing most when they seem to be labouring the least, their minds being occupied in the elucidation of their ideas, and in the completion of those conceptions to which they afterwards give form and expression with the hand. He further informed the duke that there were still wanting to him two heads, one of which, that of the saviour, he could not hope to find on earth, and had not yet attained the power of presenting it to himself in imagination, with all that perfection of beauty and celestial grace which appeared to him to be demanded for the due representation of the divinity incarnate. The second head still wanting was that of Judas, which also caused him some anxiety, since he did not think it possible to imagine the form of feature that should properly render the countenance of man who, after so many benefits received from his master, had possessed a heart so depraved as to be capable of betraying his Lord and the Creator of the world. With regard to that second, however, he would make search and after all, if he could find no better, he need never be at any great loss, for there was always the head of that troublesome and impertinent prior. This made the duke laugh with all his heart, and he declared Leonardo to be completely in the right, and the poor prior, utterly confounded, went away to drive on the digging in his garden, and left Leonardo in peace. The head of Judas was then finished so successfully that it is indeed the true image of treachery and wickedness. But that of the Redeemer remained, as we have said, incomplete. The admirable excellence of this picture, the beauty of its composition and the care with which it was executed, awakened in the King of France a desire to have it removed into his own kingdom, insomuch that he made many attempts to discover architects who might be able to secure it by defences of wood and iron that it may be transported without injury. He was not to be deterred by any consideration of the cost that might be incurred, but the painting being on the wall, his majesty was compelled to forego his desire, and the Milanese retained their picture. While still engaged with the paintings of the refectory, Leonardo proposed to the duke to cast a horse in bronze 
of colossal size and to place on it a figure of the duke, by way of monument to his memory. This he commenced, but finished the model on so large a scale that it never could be completed, and there were many ready to declare that the judgments of men are various and are sometimes rendered malignant by envy, that Leonardo had begun it, as he did others of his labours, without intending ever to finish it. The size of the work being such, insuperable difficulties presented themselves, as I have said, when it came to the casting. Nay, the casting could not be effected in one piece, and it is very probable that, when this result was known, many were led to form the opinion alluded to above from the fact that so many of Leonardo's works had failed to receive completion. But of a truth there is good reason to believe that the very greatness of his most exalted mind, aiming at more than could be effected, was itself an impediment, perpetually seeking to add excellence to excellence and perfection to perfection. This was without doubt the true hindrance, so that, as our Petrarch has it, the work was retarded by desire. All who saw the large model in clay which Leonardo made for this work declared that they had never seen anything more beautiful or more majestic. This model remained as he had left it until the French, with their King Louis, came to Milan, when they destroyed it totally. Leonardo afterwards gave his attention, and with increased earnestness, to the anatomy of the human frame, a study wherein Messer Marcantonio della Torre, an eminent philosopher, and himself did mutually assist and encourage each other. Messer Marcantonio was at that time holding lectures in Pavia, and wrote on the same subject. He was one of the first, as I have heard say, who began to apply the doctrines of Garland to the elucidation of medical science, and to diffuse light over the science of anatomy, which up to that time had been involved in almost total darkness of ignorance. In this attempt, Marcantonio was wonderfully aided by the genius and labour of Leonardo, who filled a book with drawings in red crayons, outlined with the pen, all copies made with the utmost care from bodies dissected by his own hand. In this book, he set forth the entire structure, arrangement and disposition of the bones, to which he afterwards added all the nerves in their due order, and next supplied the muscles of which the first are affixed to the bones, the second give the power of cohesion or holding firmly, and the third impart that of motion. Of each separate part he wrote an explanation in rude characters, written backwards and with the left hand, so that whoever is not practised in reading cannot understand them, since they are only to be read with a mirror. Of these anatomical drawings of the human form, a great part is now in the possession of Messer Francesco della Melzo, a Milanese gentleman, who, in the time of Leonardo, was a child of remarkable beauty, much beloved by him, and is now a handsome and amiable old man, who sets great store by these drawings, and treasures them as relics, together with the portrait of Leonardo of blessed memory. To all who read these writings, it must appear almost incredible that this sublime genius could, at the same time, discourse as he has done of art, and of the muscles, nerves, veins, and every other part of the frame, all treated with equal diligence and success. For Francesco del Giocondo, 
Leonardo undertook to paint the portrait of Mona Lisa, his wife. But after loitering over it for four years, he finally left it unfinished. This work is now in the possession of the king, King Francis of France, and is at Fontainebleau. Whoever shall desire to see how far art can imitate nature may do so to perfection in this head, wherein every peculiarity that could be depicted by the utmost subtlety of the pencil has been faithfully reproduced. The eyes have the lustrous brightness and moisture which is seen in life, and around them are those pale red and slightly livid circles, also proper to nature, with the lashes which can only be copied as these are with the greatest difficulty. The eyebrows also are represented with the closest exactitude, where fuller and where more thinly set, with the separate hairs delineated as they issue from the skin, every turn being followed, and all the pores exhibited in a manner that could not be more natural than it is. The nose, with its beautiful and delicately roseate nostrils, might be easily believed to be alive. The mouth, admirable in its outline, has the lips uniting the rose tints of their colour with that of the face, in the utmost perfection. And the carnation of the cheek does not appear to be painted, but truly of flesh and blood. He who looks earnestly at the pit of the throat cannot but believe that he sees the beating of the pulses, and it may be truly said that this work is painted in a manner well calculated to make the boldest master tremble, and astonishes all who behold it, however well accustomed to the marvels of art. Mona Lisa was exceedingly beautiful, and while Leonardo was painting her portrait, he took the precaution of keeping someone constantly near her, to sing or play an instrument, or to jest and otherwise amuse her, to the end that she might continue cheerful, and so that her face might not exhibit the melancholy expression often imparted by painters to the likenesses they take. In this portrait of Leonardo's, on the contrary, there is so pleasing an expression, and a smile so sweet, that while looking at it one thinks it rather divine than human, and it has ever been esteemed a wonderful work, since life itself could exhibit no other appearance. The excellent productions of this divine artist had so greatly increased and extended his fame, that all men who delighted in the arts, indeed the whole city of Florence, were anxious that he should leave behind him some memorial of himself, and there was much discussion everywhere in respect of some great and important work to be executed by him, to the end that the commonwealth might have the glory and the city the ornament imparted by the genius, grace, and judgment of Leonardo. At that time the great hall of the council had been constructed anew, the architecture being after designs by Giuliano di Sangulo and Michelangelo Buonarroti, as will be related in the proper place. The building having been completed with great rapidity, as was determined between the gonfaloniere and the more distinguished citizens, it was then commanded by a public decree that Leonardo should depict some fine work therein. The said hall was entrusted accordingly to that master by Piero Soderini, then gonfaloniere of justice, and he, very willing to undertake the work, commenced a cartoon in the hall of the Pope, an apartment so called in Santa Maria Novella. Herein he represented the history of Niccolò Piccionino, captain-general to the Duke Filippo of Milan, 
in which he depicted a troop of horsemen fighting around a standard and struggling for the possession thereof. This painting was considered to be a most excellent one, evincing great mastery in the admirable qualities of the composition, as well as in the power with which the whole work is treated. Among other peculiarities of this scene, it is to be remarked that not only are rage, disdain and the desire for revenge apparent in the men, but in the horses also. Two of these animals, with their forelegs intertwined, are attacking each other with their teeth no less fiercely than do the cavaliers who were fighting them for the standard. One of the combatants has seized the object of their strife with both hands, and is urging his horse to its speed, while he, lending the whole weight of his person to the effort, clings with his utmost strength to the shaft of the banner, and strives to tear it by main force from the hands of four others, who are all labouring to defend it with uplifted swords, which each brandishes in the attempt to divide the shaft with one of his hands but he grasps the cause of contention with the other. It would be scarcely possible adequately to describe the skill shown by Leonardo in this work, or to do justice to the beauty of design with which he has depicted the warlike habiliments of the soldiers, with their helmets, crests, and other ornaments, infinitely varied as they are, or the wonderful mastery he exhibits in the forms and movements of the horses these animals were, indeed, more admirably treated by Leonardo than by any other master. The muscular development, the animation of their movements, and their exquisite beauty are rendered with the utmost fidelity. It is said that for the execution of this cartoon, Leonardo caused a most elaborate scaffolding to be constructed, which could be increased in height by it being drawn together, or rendered wider by it being lowered. It was his intention to paint the picture in oil on the wall, but he made a composition for the intonaco, or ground, which was so coarse that after he had painted for a certain time, the work began to shrink, in such a manner as to induce Leonardo, very shortly, to abandon it altogether, since he saw that it was becoming spoiled. On the exaltation of Pope Leo X to the chair of St. Peter, Leonardo accompanied the Duke Giuliano de' Medici to Rome, the pontiff was much inclined to philosophical inquiry, and was more especially addicted to the study of alchemy. Leonardo, therefore, having composed a kind of paste from wax, made of this, while it was still in its half-liquid state, certain figures of animals, entirely hollow and exceedingly slight in texture, which he then filled with air. When he blew into these figures, he could make them fly through the air, but when the air within had escaped from them, they fell to the earth. There was perpetual discord between Michelangelo Buonarroti and Leonardo, and the competition between them caused Michelangelo to leave Florence, the Duke Giuliano framing an excuse for him, the pretext for his departure being that he was summoned to Rome by the Pope for the façade of San Lorenzo. When Leonardo heard of this, he also departed and went to France, where the king, already possessing several of his works, was most kindly disposed towards him, and wished him to paint the cartoon of St. Anna. But Leonardo, according to his custom, kept the king a long time waiting with nothing better than words. Finally, having become old, he lay sick for many months, and, finding himself near death, wrought diligently to make himself acquainted with the Catholic ritual, and with the good and holy path of the Christian religion. He then confessed with great penitence, and many tears, and although he could not support himself on his feet, yet, being sustained in the arms of his servants and friends, 
he devoutly received the holy sacrament while thus out of his bed. The king, who was accustomed frequently and affectionately to visit Leonardo, came immediately afterwards to his room, and he, causing himself out of reverence to be raised up, sat in his bed, describing his malady and the different circumstances connected with it, lamenting, besides, that he had offended God and man, inasmuch that he had not laboured in art as he ought to have done. He was then seized with a violent paroxysm, the forerunner of death, when the king, rising and supporting his head to give him such assistance and do him such favour as he could, in the hope of alleviating his sufferings, the spirit of Leonardo, which was most divine, conscious that he could attain to no greater honour, departed in the arms of the monarch, being at that time in the seventy-fifth year of his age. If you have enjoyed these podcasts, please consider making a donation to Art History Linkup, the charity which teaches the history of art to state school children in the UK. Art History Linkup is continuing its classes online during the pandemic, but would benefit from all our help. Donation details can be found on their website, arthistorylinkup.org. Thank you.